in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, this is Patrick Pister, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. And I have a special guest host with me today, Cindy Lee Gillespie. Cindy, is she's been working with the podcast for a while now. It's finally good to get you on the air. Welcome. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Patrick. So you, uh, yeah, so Mark's uh, calendar got a little over overwhelmed, and he... Uh, forgot about us. <laughs> <laughs> Pass the baton. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and we also have David Ramsey here, the CEO of Kelvin Topset. Welcome, David. Hi, folks. <laughs> so David and I have worked together for a long time. Tell us a little about your company, about the the safety and the, the root cause analysis. Well, Patrick, I started my company in 1986. So you can imagine that it makes me really old and <laughs> not just a company. We're very successful and uh, we deliver really HSE training or investigation training all around the world. And we've got people who work for us everywhere from uh, Scotland to New Zealand. And of course, here we have a business here in the States. We mostly do uh, teach people how to investigate, and that includes investigation itself. But the main part of that is root cause analysis. We're very keen on doing root cause analysis in a particular way that's easy for people to do and to get accurate findings. So we're we talking only when an incident happens, when when something happens and someone gets hurt, there's a spill. That's when you come in or? No, it's not. I, lots of people think it's just that. But in fact, it really is largely about prevention. If you can spot things in advance. In fact, I've been talking a lot recently about weak signals. So it really is spotting small things well in advance and to prevent incidents happening. And that can lead into, you know, hazop, hazard and such like. But it is being aware of the little things that can lead to much larger things. I was uh, fortunate or unfortunate, whichever way you look at it, I'd had major part in playing the investigation of Deepwater Horizon. That's nine years ago now, and uh, it's almost history for young people. But nevertheless, when you looked at that, it's common to all the incidents. There were very small indicators or weak signals at the beginning, well in advance, that was a stoppable incident, as all incidents are. But I do want to emphasize the point, if we look at it as a problem-solving tool so that we can look at things in advance, then we can stop incidents happening. So can you give us an example? What, what are these weak signals that you, you know, just a few of what you would consider weak signals that can lead to these? Well, you can uh, walk along and you can see somebody not wearing the correct PPE. So for example, I go into a factory and there's signs up saying, uh, you must wear ear defenders and uh, I'm wearing ear defenders. And uh, But perhaps a member of the management team wouldn't be wearing ear defenders. Immediately, I've got uh, something flagging up in my, in my head. And what you're really looking at, if you get just three indicators, it can tell you that there's something seriously wrong with that company. You don't have to have a big host of indicators. You can have three things. Maybe uh, an electrician standing in a junction box might be another thing like that. People operating in a wet area where they don't have to operate in a wet area. Or just the feeling and the general feeling of the staff. There's one particular company I went to a long time ago. Uh, I was asked to go and look at that company by Shell. 
And immediately when you walked through the door, there was an uncomfortable feeling. And that's very important. The uh, Maybe 70% of your uh, gut feelings are probably right. So don't ignore uh, the gut feelings. They're really very, very important. So well, working offshore, I've had a few instances where you, you sure go you there and... Well, what was that, David? I said, I'm sure you have. Yeah, well, <laughs> but you look at the the sack room or the mud room or the mud pits, and if it's a clean space, you know that they're taking care of it. It's not, it's those weak indicators that you're looking for to kind of, like you said, it gives you that gut feel, but, you know, a, a tidy work environment. So, you know, and the, the ear defense is a funny thing because a lot of times you don't think it's too loud. But you know, a lot of these facilities have requirements. You have to wear ear defenders in, you know, whenever you're outside of the accommodations. How, when you're working in the situation, can you identify these weeks? Because it's a lot of noise. You, you, you get doing the job. You may not notice personally that you're, you're showing these weak signals. So how do you stop, step back, and actually identify the weak signals before there's an incident? I think it's like being a good parent or being a good driver is that you, you look at things and you see things. So a lot of it's based on experience. You can't expect new people uh, to go in and pick these things up. But I notice I'm very keen on driving. I just go back to the keen driving thing. And I live in a, a long street in a country village. And the speed limit there is 30 miles per hour. And I often look at my speedometer and I'm doing 25 I'm particularly cautious. And can I tell you something? It just happened to me just now. I was down in uh, city centre here in Houston and I was driving carefully out to the parking lot and a man walked out from the side and he fell over the bonnet of my car. <laughs> now, I was going very, very slowly. If I had been going fast, as lots of people are going through parking lots, then the man could have been possibly killed. And he just fell over my bonnet and you know, I spoke to him, made sure he was okay. That was, you know, he'd done something accidentally and it all was okay. But you can never be too careful. So it's that experience thing. It's not just a question of following the rules. The rules might say it's 30 miles an hour or it's where you defend us. You have got to put some judgment into that uh, so that your personal experience prevents things happening. I think that's at the core of HSE. So how do you convince somebody that these weak indicators are actually something to worry about? Because when you, you talk about the, the Deepwater Horizon, the Macondo, the blowout, if you were presenting a report to me and I saw, oh, you know, you're, you're commenting on ear defenders or other things that are, you know, I wouldn't say were directly related to that incident. So how do you convince management that these small things actually lead to a larger incident? I'm going to take you back a little bit outside the oil industry. My original background, uh, much further back than I'd care to admit here on the, the radio, but I was uh, worked in food technology. And it really was when you're in quality control was to look at you know, what people were doing. And it was the strength of your personality to be able to go up and say to people, look, there's a problem here. Let me talk it through with you. Let's see what would the implications of that be. And I think that's what you've got to do, the good parent, the good driver. You're working with your team and you have to say to them, well, look, this is uh, not right for the following reasons. So I think you've got to do this explanation thing. And I want to use that as a point into communications. 
that at the heart of everything is good communication. So you've got to be able to talk to people, be able to have a way of expressing yourself. I wasn't always good at that. Uh, as I've got older, I feel much better at doing that, talking to people, engaging with people, and it's just being polite. But communications are so important. Very recently, about two weeks ago, we had this terrible air crash in Indonesia where somewhere almost 200 people have died. And it's not been... Uh, entirely proven yet but it looks as if Boeing didn't communicate to the company uh, one of the features of the aircraft which tended to force the nose down the pilots didn't know and uh, it's a communication issue was part of it, there are other issues with it of course I'm a trained air crash investigator as well and uh, so there wasn't uh, not all the information's free so I don't want to prejudge in any way but nevertheless communications seem to be a big issue if we go back to probably one of the best-known incidents ever was the sinking of the Titanic and, uh, in 1912. And if we think about that, if the captain, Captain Smith, who looks remarkably like me, white <laughs> beard, and uh, he was uh, didn't have all the information. People didn't tell him about the icebergs. People didn't tell him about lots of different things. And the result of that, we know, uh, 1,500 people died. Those people... Well, they wouldn't be alive today because of the time, but those people would have lived if he'd had more information. So we are duty-bound to tell people. We all know in our own families we get it wrong. When I run courses, I say, you know, please put your hand up if you've never had, you know, an argument with your dearest and nearest and dearest or friends, lovers, whatever it might be. And of course, no one puts their hand up that we all have communication problems. And hi. Add in email and texts and such like, and uh, we really have multiplied the problems. So, and I like the I like the kind of the the parent the stewardship analogy. A lot of companies have start stop OBS cards, and that's you know it's it's to drive that communication. But you still have incidents on those rigs. So, is is that communication enough? Like what what level is needs to happen. I, I, again, I want to use an example outside the oil industry. I have a lot of experience in explosives and I worked in a very big explosives plant. And if I tell you, the perimeter fence was 17 miles. It had a harbour, its own uh, railway and such. It's a really big, big place. And they were unhappy with the quality of their safety. And it wasn't bad because if you get it wrong and explosives it's very, very, very serious. But they spent four years. And at the heart of that, they used, a lot of us might think is old hat now, uh, was the DuPont stop program. Now, we helped them with DuPont's permission to uh, localise the, the material that they've got so people would be able to you know, understand it, but get benefit from it. Well, as a result of that, and they took it out to schools and they took it out to uh, various places and homes and such like, and they did not have a single lost time injury in four years. So it was about communicating to the staff, the staff communicating to each other, and they were very proud of that. And most importantly, no one was hurt. So I think you can, in fact, apply these things uh, offshore or anywhere else. Uh, I strongly believe in that. So we've talked kind of about the theory of things, but having you on, I want to get down to the, you know, the methodology of a good investigation, because I think that would be very useful for the audience. Sure. Uh, you know, not specific to Kelvin Topset, but what is, what is the, you know, the elements of a good investigation and, you know, how do you use it to then improve your operations going forward? 
Well, what you've got to do, you're clearly looking, uh, you've got a problem to start with, so you've got to define the problem. And lots of people don't actually do that. You go and talk to them and say, look, what is the problem? So it doesn't matter what you're doing, that you have to say, well, the problem is this. Uh, we've got a problem with cranes, a crane broke, or we've got a problem with a bridge, we've got a problem with a drill. That's what we're going to look at. Nothing wider, wider than that. You've got to define what your problem is. Having got that, you then put a team together, depending on the size of the incident, and that team may have specialists on it. And then you start to look at where the problems are, gather the information. Now, we use indicators. We've got a, a system of indicators to help people think where they need to look. And that's important, and it's important to know it's not a checklist because no one can write a checklist to cover every possible scenario. So this is really to guide it and to get you to think more widely. Well, you said uh, may involve specialists. Why, why, it, well, it may wise? involve specialists, but the reason I'm saying that is that, uh, for example, I'm not an oil specialist. So I would want to have perhaps yourself, Patrick, or someone along who knew more about it. So I bring a specialist on there uh, to help me with that. But again, in this, there's also a danger. I've looked at many things and we're very interested in psychological profiling, and many companies use that to see the type of personality you've got. And the danger is that you get a whole lot of people with exactly the same personality, so they're not able to share, they're not able to see things differently. And Cindy, if I can say to you, one of the things I'm very keen to have is have a mixed gender team. We joke about it, men and women being different, but we do think differently. We're of equal value, but we think differently. So I'm very keen to have that wider way of looking at things, not for everyone uh, to be exactly the same. So using that, we then go out and we gather information. We need a good team leader who's able to assemble that information. We're able to express our findings. And once we feel we've got all the findings, we've exhausted every possibility, at that point, and only at that point, do we start to say, well, let's do a root cause analysis we were drilling down step by step by step to find out what was the basic problem, the most basic problem that started the thing happening. And it's only by addressing that and looking at that in the long term that we can we actually change things there. Again, I'm going to use another example outside the oil industry because we work in oil industries. And it was a major rail company, not in the US, I'm pleased to say. And uh, they brought in a new... Uh, director or president of the company. And we looked at something for him and went back and said, well, look, it's a human factors issue. And this guy wasn't interested at all. He wanted it to be an engineering solution. And uh, after half an hour, I said, well, that's it, time's up. Uh, interesting, they went bust. Uh, it doesn't make me proud, but it just wouldn't look at the real problem. And I want to come back to that point because when we select people, it's so easy to get people who've got an interest in, for example, lots of engineers, great, it's super, but they may not want to look at the human factor side. Uh, so you need to look at human factors, environmental factors, and uh, you know, organizational factors. I'm originally a technologist, I like the kit, and lots of people are in there, but the answer will not be in the kit. The answer is always, always, always going to come back to people at some point. People design things, people run things. They're not making deliberate mistakes. They've done it with the best intent, but it's going to come back to people and organization. And if your answer isn't there, you haven't got the answer. Well, you, and you brought up a good point. I want to get back to that a little bit more. 
how do you stop? So management's going to be the one that decides an investigation is going to go on. Sure. How do you drive out that desire to get to the bottom of the root cause analysis? They want to jump to, <laughs> they want to jump to the cause and they want to yeah. kind of, yeah. it's not a, it's not a malicious attempt, but they think they know what happened. So they want to fill in the root cause and then use an investigation to prove it. And that always tends to creep in, even if it doesn't lead the investigation. No, 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 so I agree how do you fight? Because I think that's a big problem. How do you fight that from happening? Again, it's to do with strength of personality of the person your team leader is. Sometimes as a team leader, you've got to take on and say, look, hang on a minute, I'm running this. And uh, you engage me to run this, I'm running it, and this is what we found. If you don't like it, then uh, we need to have a discussion. One of the things that I always, always do when I do an investigation is I get all of the players and stakeholders as far as I can together before I give out the draft report. And the reason is you give it the draft report and people please to have it, but people put it in their drawer and I must get around to that at some point and other priorities take over and they don't get around to reading it. Then they read it out of context. What I do is I get everyone around uh, in the room and I then start to discuss my findings and I put them up possibly in a flip chart or something like that and everyone has an opportunity to comment. And I remember having one client who said to me, no, we don't do it that way. And I said, yes, well, you do now. And uh, we brought the people along and he said, yeah, you were right. He said, we won't ever do it another way again. I remember an oil industry one, I won't mention the company for fairly obvious reasons. It was back in Holland. And no, it wasn't Shell, by the way. <laughs> it was, uh, we got this company together, pretty serious investigation on an FPSO that was, had been in the Indian Ocean at the time. So it was a... The investigation was an air mile special. And I got all of the people together in the room and we discussed what we'd found. And funnily enough, there was only one other Scotsman in the room and uh, clearly I'm Scottish. And what happened was he felt he was being blamed. Now, he wasn't. And it got a fairly heated argument, about 15 people in the room. And, but he was able to express his view and so was everyone else. And when we finished, he was able to go out and shake my hand and be happy that he was not being blamed for it. We had found the true root cause. And for many years, the vice president of that company always sent me a Christmas card. So <laughs> it really is partly strength of personality, being a good leader and being able to get all of the information and being truthful. I believe in very open and honest. If I can carry on with that example in this FPSO, when I arrived, I... We had a terms of reference or a scope, whichever you want to call it. I shared it with all of the department heads on the FPSO and some of them weren't happy with what was there. I said, I will promise you I will not leave this vessel before I've brought you all back together again and tell you what I've found, good or bad. Now, it won't be the end of the investigation because I have to do other things, other places, but I will share with you what I've found. I will be completely open and honest with you. People know you're doing that. It's very important. It's unlike the audit where the auditor goes around and says, yes, all very nice. And two weeks later, you get a nasty report coming in. You mustn't do that. You must be absolutely upfront, honest, and decent. Well, I think that's part of the reason that HSE in general, but anytime there's an investigation, you're, you're thought of as the police. And unfortunately, that it still persists in the oil and gas industry, but it, it's hard to get people to talk to you about honestly what happened because they think you're trying to, you say root cause analysis, I say you're looking for somebody to run off. And that m mindset's changing, but I think it's still out there. 
I think it's still out there. But again, you mentioned interviewing there. Interviewing is a very special skill. I'm very, very interested in interviewing. And if you do it properly, people will tell you anything and everything if you do it properly. And uh, don't take this the wrong way, Cindy, but it's a little, <laughs> bit like, a little bit like seduction or chatting to a woman. Oh, absolutely, yes. And there, there, are, there are a lot of similarities in right. that. And I wish I had known about this when I was a, a young man rather than the, the person I am now, <laughs> that you could chat to people and talk right. to women. And it's like that. I mean, I've talked to people after fatalities and really bad stuff. And provided you get it right uh, and you're sincere, right. people will give you uh, lots of information and be very helpful. And I never, ever, I don't even use the word interviewing now. I just say, I want you to come and chat with me. And I never, ever use... Uh, things like saying, well, we're not here to blame you because the person only hears one word, and that word is blame. So I say, I'm here, I just want to chat with you. I want you to help me solve this problem. So by doing that and by really uh, taking that very human approach, then in my experience, it's quite a big experience, that people will tell you most things. So that's, I I like that. That's at at the bottom level where the rubber meets the road at the incident. You're trying to figure out that. Moving further up the chain, as far as the the management of the investigation goes, when it comes down to a cultural issue, so you have human yeah, human factors, you know, it goes up the chain, and you've identified that it's a cultural issue. And I've run into this in the past. I'm curious how you you approach it. The person that's given you the remit to do the investigation, you're now then saying it is at your level a cultural issue. So internally, if you're doing an, an investigation, some, some junior employee has to tell his boss at some level that it's, it's a cultural is- issue at the management here. If you're an external consultant like Kelvin Topset and you're coming in to do an investigation, you may not get hired back if you're saying that, oh, we're, we're calling this a cultural issue at the, at the management level. I think a couple of things in here. The first thing is I still tell it how it is. If I don't tell it how it is, then I'm not worth anything as a company. I've got to say, and if they don't hire me back, they don't hire me back. That actually hasn't happened because uh, I just tell it how I found it and said, this is it. Uh, I've been asked in the past to change the report. I said, I will not change the report unless you can prove to me that it is wrong in some way. This is what we found. It was honest. In terms of the more junior person having to say, well, I think, you know, the boss got it wrong in some way, that's more difficult. And I know that uh, some companies here, and I can think of one in particular right here in Houston, that the investigator uh, does not report back, but somebody higher up the food chain actually does that, takes the recommendations forward. Recommendations are discussed with the investigators, but the investigators, at least the internal ones, don't take it forward. It's done higher up the food chain so that uh, they can get that point across. But culture is always an issue, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, between different countries. And that's a big issue with a global industry like the oil industry, or it's just cultural within the company itself. Every company has its own culture. And it's quite difficult, you know. So culture is a a big factor, no question about it. And I wish I had a magic wand, but I don't have that. And some countries you go to, uh, the person you're talking to just wants to give you the answer that (laughs) they they think you want. So it's finding the real answer isn't always easy. Yeah, well, I can tell you from personal experience, being the person that has to say that seeing a root cause changed on a final report 
or, you know, upsetting somebody and having, having to tell your supervisor that you can either tell me to redo the investigation, you can send another team out to do the investigation, but you can't sit back and Monday morning quarterback the report and change what you want about it to, to show your, your findings. And that's a, it's a hard thing to do for somebody at a, at a junior Actually, level I agree with you. It is a hard thing to do. But honesty is always the best policy. Absolutely. So we, we talked a lot about the investigation side. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the, the training side of things. So if, if an organization wants to start up, you know, it, whether they have an investigation process or they're, or they're new to it, you know, how does that training go? You know, how, many, how much experience do they need to, they're done with your training and they can go out and do a full investigation of an incident? I think there are a couple of things. I just wind back a little bit. I think for an organization, you've got to identify who would it profit you to train or develop. And it's not everyone in your organization. And, and please God, you're not going to have, you know, big investigations to do on a regular basis. If you are, there's something seriously wrong. So you've got people who'd be appropriate to do various levels of investigation. You've got to identify those people. And then you go on a training or development course, and hopefully it'd be one of our courses, but <laughs> even if it's not, there's a basic principle and uh, that you can't ride a bicycle unless you go and try it. And uh, that concerns me because there's so much theory that you get in all sorts of things. And we do see that with some competing systems, that there's uh, a lot of theory, but you know very little practice. So you've got to get practice. And do remember what I said right at the beginning, investigation is not necessarily about investigating incidents. They can be investigating problems or things that you know have potential to happen. So you're not sitting around waiting until you've got an incident. So for example, you go on a training course, could be ours, anyone else's, and nothing happens for a year and then suddenly you're out there having to ride the bicycle and you've forgotten how to get on it and such like so you really you've got to use the skills in some way and do remember that investigation is a natural human thing because it's related to curiosity i've just got a, a new dog i'm very keen on dogs i've just got a new border collie and she'll be six months old this week and i've had her four months now and because Border Collies are sheepdogs, uh, they're very, very intelligent. They're generally recognized as being the most intelligent dogs. But it's very interesting watching her like a child stopping and assimilating information. She is investigating all the time. If any of you listening here, and many of you will be parents, then you'll be aware of children growing up looking at things uh, probably asking embarrassing questions in front of your friends <laughs> and uh, all sorts of things like that. It is a natural thing to be curious. So you want to find people who are curious and who look at things and uh, go out and test and uh, test the theory and such like. So practice, as in anything in life, whether it's dancing or riding a bicycle or drilling for oil, you can only do that uh, through experience. So where, where do you find those uh, those opportunities to practice these these proactive the continuous process improvement? Well, it, we've talked a lot about continuous process improvement uh, in the past, and that really is what it's about. It's keeping your foot on the gas in terms of safety, in terms of investigation. They're all rolled into one, so it's very very important. So that's yeah, I'm completely with you there. One of the things that I was most interested in when I saw that you were actually teaching courses on investigations, and you touched on it briefly when you were talking about good communication, yes. and I was thinking that, that remaining curious during an investigation without jumping to the end conclusion that I know what this means, that the curiosity part is something that would have to be developed within the investigator. So as part of the courses, when you teach them, are there 
exercises to help people develop their curiosity? Because I mean, I'm in sales, and I'm thinking having the curiosity skill would have, you know, multifaceted impact through an organization. How can we do this better? What's going on here? Why are we getting these sure, results? Sure. Just even yeah. outside of an investigation. But it's, as, as I said, the um, helping people develop their curiosity. Is that... Is- yes, I think that's part of it. We have lots of case studies in there, which have got to uh, drill to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Some of them have got 3D animations and things like that. But you're quite right. It's about the curiosity. Unless you've got that, then uh, you can't do the thing properly. And one of the other things you referred to just now, Cindy, is the fact that it's so easy to jump to conclusion, right? It's a 46, it's a 92. I've seen it before. Well, in actual fact, if you look at, and I've looked at so many investigations, you know, there's a huge similarity between them all. And it's very easy just to say, you know, it was that. And when we teach our courses, uh, we are not al- one of the words we're not allowed to use is obvious. It's mm. obvious. <laughs> because it might be, it might not. You might have seen it before, but there might be some little difference in that that has enabled it to happen. And in all incidents, and I'll repeat that, in all incidents, it would not have happened unless there'd been a change of some sort. So things would be running along absolutely fine. If we go out to the I-10 here, we look at the cars running along the freeway and trucks, there will be no accidents unless something changes. And that's true in absolutely everything we do. And I remember, again, in the oil industry, it was in the Netherlands this time, can emphasize again, it wasn't Shell. It was uh, another company and there'd been a collapse of an oil storage tank, uh, potential, huge potential, and nobody was hurt. And I remember having an argument with the chief engineer who didn't believe that change existed. I said, the thing could not have fallen down unless something had changed. Impossible. So really, that curiosity ties in with what changed? What was different? Mm -hmm. And uh, in anything you do, I mean, that incident I had just minutes before I came here when the man fell over the bonnet of my car, what had changed for him for that to happen? Maybe he was worried about something. Maybe he got a domestic problem or a business thing. His mind was elsewhere. He wasn't looking for my red car, so it's quite easy to see. And, you know, fortunately, I was going quite slowly and he fell over the bonnet. So something had changed for him. It's not normal to walk into the side of somebody's car and fall over the bonnet. So what you're looking for is change. If you go to the doctor and you ask him or her to solve a problem, in fact, just my colleague Karen has just dropped me. Her daughter Jordan had phoned a little while ago and she had a bit of a medical problem. And I'm saying to her, I think this is what it is. And I'm not a doctor. You know, <laughs> the thing that had changed was whatever. And she phoned back a little while ago and said, yeah, David was right. It was that. Because it was a change. You could identify what the change was. So whatever it is, you know, what has caused the problem. So it is a curiosity and finding out what has changed. But I think you brought up a good point today about, I mean, you, you, David, you mentioned earlier about we're, we were kind of born with this natural curiosity. Yeah? Absolutely. Asking those embarrassing questions. Yes. But, but it's, for lack of a better phrase, it's beaten out of us as we grow yes. up. Like stop asking those questions. That's embarrassing. So it, it, it does take some training to redevelop that curiosity and ask, because if it's obvious to somebody in the room that you're talking to, well, if I don't see it, I must be an idiot. So we'll just go with that. But asking that next question, well, why, why is it so obvious to you? And it's not obvious to me. Well, I, and I've got a picture of my granddaughter when she was little, that what we need to have is a childlike curiosity which we lose as we get older because we're afraid to make 
a fool of ourselves in front of other people. I, I don't want to ask that, that, that stupid question. And interesting, I investigated in Far East Russia and Sakhalin Island. I dropped, investigated uh, some years ago a 240-ton load being dropped. And the problem was, it was very interesting in that they'd done a risk assessment. When I looked at it, I thought it wasn't a very good risk assessment, despite the fact they had all these very good, highly professional engineers, and they had agreed to go ahead on the basis of whatever. And this was a, a great big unit which had fallen over, and it was to do with where the centre of gravity was. And only two people asked me you know, why they'd done that, why had the centre of gravity been wherever it was at the time. And one of them was an accountant from New Zealand, and the other was my English graduate PA back in Scotland. The engineers had not asked the daft question. And that's what you need. And my recommendation, in fact, was to say you've got some highly educated uh, people here on the admin side, most of them women. Take one of them into your next risk assessment. And if that person doesn't understand what the thing is, then you have to explain it. And uh, I think Einstein himself said that, you've got to explain things at a simple level. Everything can be broken down to a very, a very simple level. I think that's great. Great message and a good uh, transition into the, uh, the Red Wing Savvy Tip of the Week. So taking everything we've talked about, you know, we always give our guests a chance to offer you know, one little piece of advice that's going to keep people safe in our Red Wing Safety Tip of the Week. So, David, so for, me, you- for me, it's very much communication uh, and to use your experience and to tell other people about that. Every single thing we've looked at is based on communication. I started that at the beginning and said it's about communication. Please look at that. Share what you've got with your friends. I get accused at home, as I'm sure we all do, of uh, not communicating. <laughs> but uh, we all do that. But seriously, do you know? tell your friends. Do communicate if you see a problem and do something about it. Well, I, I like that one because I was I was actually on an investigation and one of the one of the recommendations was to use closed loop communication. You say what you're going to do, the person says it back to you, and you confirm that that's what was going to happen. And it, you know it's a simple practice, but it takes some change in personality. And the guys on the rig flat out told me, like, "That's not how we talk out here." And I, so I was like, "I know I I used to work offshore. I um, I understand that's not the normal way you communicate, but." And when you get down to it, it, it was a contributing factor was the miscommunication between two senior level employees. So we're recommending that you try this clo- this closed loop communication. And, and I was I was dumbfounded in the fact that they said, well, you know, thanks, but no thanks. That's interesting because in acting, apparently, you tell them what you're going to say, uh, do it and tell them what you've done. And that works very well for me. And when I teach people to teach or to talk or to do presentations. It's very much that. Tell them what you're going to say, do it, and then tell them what you've said again. So you've embedded what you wanted to say. Has the person understood? I like that. Feed it back to me. Tell me what you've heard. Uh, so you've got that. So. Yeah. In, and in this specific case, it was an overpressurization of a line. A senior level employee said what he was going to do. I'm going to pressure up this system. The other employee said, yeah, go ahead went and lined up the system incorrectly because he misunderstood. And again, had they, had they solved it right there, they would have, you know, they, you know, no, that's not what I said. You need to line this up. But uh, yeah, so I, I love the, the example, or I love the, um, the tip to. I, I had a great little example of a miscommunication last night, me not understanding something. <laughs> I went to the Apple store and they bought a new iPhone 10X and the, the chap in the store was helping me set it up. And because it's got the facial recognition. And he said, what I want you to do, I want you to look at the sensor screen and rotate, you know, 
turn your head. So I turned my head swinging to the right because that's what I understood him saying. But what he actually wanted me to do was to rotate my head, you know, in the same plane oh. while looking at the <laughs> at the phone. And because I got it wrong. But I mean, <laughs> if he'd explained it differently, we might have got it right. Yeah. 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 I find it interesting that in the age of information, when we're inundated with so much coming at us all the time, that it seems that some people are assuming that lots of information is communication. And it isn't communication at all. It's just telling you. Just too much information. Too much yeah. information. Yeah. People just telling you yeah. uh, something. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Yeah, I forget. I'm, I'm going to mess it up. You know, I don't understand why they why they don't understand what I just told them. Well, it's it's not it's not just on them. It's on right. it's on both sides right. of the table. Yeah. So that that brings us to the uh, the Red Wing offshore bag, David. I think I showed you this last time. That's our Red Wing offshore bag. We gave away all right one a week. So you go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast, redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. You put your information in, and Red Wing picks one lucky winner a week, and we will send it to Aberdeen or wherever else that uh, our winner is from. Can I say to you folks, it's a really nice bike because I'm sitting and <laughs> look at it. It's, it's worth going for. Well, and I, I give Mark a hard time yeah. about it because yeah. everybody on the team's got a bag, but mine's the only one that's been offshore. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> so that brings us to uh, our events. We, uh, we actually just had our happy hour for November last night, and we have them every the last Tuesday of every month here at the Cannon off of Britmore in Houston, Texas. I don't know if we're going to have one in December, but if not, we'll be back in January for it because we're getting close to the, the Christmas season. But you can go and find uh, OGGN LinkedIn group, com, or follow any one of the podcast hosts. We all social blast everything. So just to close, you know, David, I really appreciate you. The audience doesn't know this is the second interview we've actually had because I had some technical issues and we lost the first one. But I appreciate you coming back all the way across the pond to, sure. to sit with me again. It's been a pleasure. And if there's anything that people want to find out more about Kelvin Topset or if you have anything you want to offer, where should they go? Well, it's www.kelvintopset.com or phone my office, Karen Hatler, here in uh, Houston. I didn't ask you this time, but um, Kelvin Topset, it's a very interesting name. Can you give me a little background on why? We're very, very proud of the name. The, those of you who are engineers or scientists and such, we recognize Kelvin in the sense that the absolute temperature uh, is a Kelvin degrees. And about 1880, the leading scientist probably in the world was uh, William Thompson, who was actually was originally Irish. He was a professor at the University of Glasgow from age 22 and she's a lot brighter than me. And he took his name in Britain that you take your name, you become a lord from somewhere that you like. And the River Kelvin runs around the University of Glasgow. So he became uh, William Thompson, Baron Kelvin of Largs. Largs is where, very close to where our office is based. And then uh, the top set part comes from uh, our, a bit of an acronym, a mnemonic. It's uh, technology, organization, people, uh, similar events and time, so that's where it comes from. Uh, well, thanks very if much. you've ever yeah. seen the top set poster, it is a lot of information that the the system wants you to go through, and it uh, you have to take it in bite sized chunks to get through a full set. I think it is, but I do want to say to you, it's uh, simple at the point of use. That's very, very, very important. When things are too complex, they don't work. So I'm very keen in cartoons. You've got to get the message across very clearly and very simply. Uh, so that's you know a really important thing. Yeah, and I've gone through and probably thousands of sticky notes running through those uh, exercises. <laughs> with the, yeah, I wish I had uh, <laughs> something sticky notes. Yeah. <laughs> and we, you know, I want to thank uh, Cindy Lee for for coming. Well, and, thank you for having me. Yeah, it was show. great. 
I'm, I'm sure we're going to hear more from you. Yes. So that kind of closes things out. You know, and Dave's, or, uh, Mark's not here to do the closing for us, but uh, I just want everybody to be safe out there. Excellent. Absolutely. Be safe. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond. Do you have a... uh crazy thing that you've seen in the field yeah i think it's not from the oil industry but it's a, a real crazy and um, potentially extremely serious thing that i saw i was uh, gone to do some work in an explosives plant and the explosions are the very simple way that explosives that we use the uh, the acronym or mnemonic fish so things are blow up with uh, friction impact static or heat and uh, there was explosive powder on the floor. You had to be very careful about what you were doing, and you had to wear overshoes and such like going in. And when I was in there, half the staff went out and walked down a gravel path and came back in again. And I literally had my fingers in my mouth because if this thing blew, we're all dead. And I was scared witless in this place. And it's the interesting thing about the outsider person being extremely careful because they're scared witless, but inside people become, you know, blase and, you know, and they become inured to safety. So right. I do see crazy things like that. People say, well, you know, wouldn't happen to me, happen to somebody else. And, you know, seen a lot of stuff like that. It's amazing when you... Yeah. yeah.